beautiful souls. I'm Reverend Carla. Welcome to Spirituality Matters. And now I invite you to settle into that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the Holy transcends our physical bodies. And our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. Today's podcast is entitled, What If You're Wrong? Living with the Fear of Hell, the Rapture, and the Return of Jesus. Now, today's podcast is inspired by a follower's question about being happier as a deconstructed Christian, but still fearing hell and eternal damnation if she was wrong. And it may be hard for some of you of you to believe that there are people who live with the fear of Jesus returning. Now, let me assure you that this is very real. I was one of them for many years. But if you think about it, why would the, the thought of Jesus returning be scary? Well, because if Jesus has returned, as it's reported in the book of Revelations, or a better uh, way of saying that is the way some people interpret the book of Revelations, then um, Jesus returning means that life as we have come to know it is over. So according to the people who believe in the rapture, which is ingrained in end times theology, Jesus's return means the rapture has occurred. And if you're still here, then you miss the rapture, which is then when the saved in Jesus Christ will be taken up to heaven before the events laid out in the book of Revelations happen. Now, the book of Revelations, we could do an entire series on that, and we will be revisiting that topic, especially as we move closer into some of the programs that we'll soon be offering to help you on your deconstructing journey. So stay tuned. We've been listening to you, um, beautiful souls, and we know that there are many of you who want to go deeper on your spiritual healing journey, and we're excited to be able to, to offer some things with you. So this, this whole book of Revelations, the end time theology, basically is, is entrenched in evangelical Christianity. And that belief is that Jesus' return is imminent. And that notion has been happening for years. But let's just look at the data for a minute. And again, this will be in the show notes for this podcast. But among white evangelical Christians in the United States, 58% believe that Jesus Christ will return to earth by the year 2050. Now, this is according to a Pew Research sub, uh, survey, and there was also a post an article from 2013 as well that references that. But if you think that that's a fringe position, that same research says that 41% of all Americans, not just evangelicals, believe that the second coming is not only real, but that it's going to happen sometime before 2050. 2050. In other words, in our lifetime. Um, but what modern day Christians may not know, or maybe they just forget, is that countless other generations have believed that the world was going to end in their lifetime and that Christ's return was imminent. They would always look at what all the events of the world and think that that Christ's return was imminent. This has been happening for a couple of under a hundred years, especially for those who have been indoctrinated in end times, evangelical end times theology. In uh, Matthew 16, 28, uh, it ends with Jesus saying, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now there are different interpretations of what this actually means, but Jesus who was Jewish also believed in 
he didn't believe in the end times theology that I was indoctrinated in as an evangelical Christian, but he had, he believed in Jewish theology, which said that God would return to earth and reign for a thousand years, that God would conquer evil. And Jesus believed that that would happen in his lifetime. Now there is a book that we'll be talking about in a little bit that is a really good reference. There's a couple of, of them actually uh, that we'll be referencing regarding end times theology. But as you can imagine, if you've ever read it or tried to study it on your own, oh, it's so easy to get lost in it, isn't it? I mean, or even just to get confused because it's all open to interpretation. It was written that way. It's, it's, it's fantastic imagery and a lot of symbolism. So it's, it really is a hard read. So like I said, people who have studied this for years actually argue among themselves about what some of the meanings are. So you have things like the red beasts with the seven heads, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, drink some, drink some wine and read it and see what comes up for you. But most people think that John of Patmos uh, wrote Revelations. This is not the disciple of Jesus. This is, this is someone else who, who wrote this. And he was probably uh, Jewish and he was probably a refugee because he would have been witness to the Roman destruction of the Jewish temple and basically the annihilation of so many thousands of Jews. It was brutal. And John of Patmos also believed that them in their time were living in the last days. So like I've said a thousand, a hundred times before in videos and things like that, this is something, Revelations is written more as what they call apocalyptic literature. It's often uh, referred to as coded literature, coded C-O-D-E-D, because the people who were writing at that time had to write in code lest they also suffer the consequences of Roman oppression. Because at this time, the Jews were very much being oppressed by a very powerful Roman empire who would not tolerate any more religious uprisings. So anytime they would try to suppress them, it was brutal. It was graphically brutal and incredibly inhumane. And this Roman empire at this time was showing no sign of weakening. So how do you keep people whose customs and traditions were basically completely annihilated, whose temple was destroyed? How do you keep them looking forward? How do you keep them in even desiring to even want to be in some kind of community or hope for a community when there was so much oppression. Well, what better way to do that than to write a message of hope, write a letter of hope to remind the people that God was still in power. And for the followers of Jesus, that means that Jesus would also return and defeat evil. That's things like the, the beast 666, you hear the mark of the beast, which is believed uh, to refer to Nero, the Roman Empire. And like I said, if you want to, you can go into a deep dive into evangelicalism and its belief uh, system, evangelical Christianity and its beliefs. But what you will find there is someone's it, trying to interpret every line of revelations to concur with end times prophecy. Whereas if you look at scholarly research and compare it to context and compare it to history, you will see a very much different translation of, and meaning behind that. So it's interesting that as I talk about this, I have paused 
following people on TikTok because I, my following count is at 666 and I'm finding <laughs> it's one of those petty things that I'm just enjoying for a minute, because honestly, uh, I get called the antichrist and Satan's daughter and uh, all these crazy things that people will want to hurl at me, which is in the, I guess, in their defense, uh, ex explaining where they're coming from that indoctrination into their belief system is so powerful that they actually feel like it's their God-given right to hurl those inserts, insults at me, that they are doing something godly and saintly by accusing me of those things. And so what I'm doing is just taking the power out of that, those kinds of insults and kind of uh, poking fun at the fact that I've been called the antichrist when clearly I am not. Okay, so going back to John of Patmos, um, John of Patmos would have had the same beliefs as Jesus. Both men were Jewish, and they would have believed that God would return to earth, that good would inhabit the earth, and that Jesus as a Jew, he would have believed that God would have reigned uh, for a thousand years, and that bad people would just be annihilated. So in, in that vein of what Jesus believed, and if you look at it through, and once again, my grand dog, can you hear? I have a new mic too, because I heard that uh, some of my other, my, I thought was a good mic. I got a really good deal on it. Now I know why. And it really made me sound metally. Uh, so now we have a better mic and I hope you're hearing, which probably means that you're hearing her build a nest as she always does about 10 minutes into my podcast. So someday when I can get her a better angle, I'll try to get her on camera because it actually is quite lovely. Uh, my grand dog is about 12 years old. And I know one of these days I'm going to miss her. So the fact that she still wants to be in here with me and cause a little ruckus, I think we'll all miss her someday. So we're just going to give her her moment. Oh, she's finally laying down. So maybe we can be quiet here. All right. So one of the books that I recommend to people who are starting their deconstructing journey is one from Elaine Pagels called Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation. Now, I really like this book. This helped me really untangle some of those beliefs because I was having a real hard time understanding a, a belief that, that a, a God would annihilate a creation for the love of what he created. There was always this dichotomy, even, even when I was entrenched in my evangelical belief that just didn't add up for me. So this book did a lot of good for helping me do that. But what is in here, what Pagel says, which is what I've already inferred, that there are thinly disguised metaphors for images about the ruling powers in Rome. So for example, there's inferences about the seven heads and the seven crowns. They, that is believed to be representative of the emperors and uh, from the dynasty of Julius Caesar. And like I said, the beast, which is not named, but is represented by the number 666, that was uh, referring to Emperor Nero at the time. So there's also all this coded language around calculating numbers and letters, and depending on how you calculated them at the time, you can make them mean whatever you need them to mean. So, but at this time that John of Patmos wrote the book of Rep Revelations, Christians were indeed fearing persecution. They were terrified as well. So they were reading the book of Revelations as a as a, a reminder and affirmation that God was still on their side. Now, as time goes on, for instance, 
let's move up to American history. In the Civil War, Northerners were reading John's prophecies in Revelations as God's judgment on American sin of slavery. So you you look at this side, that side, that's how they saw Revelations, that they were fulfilling some of that prof, prophetic uh, writings by going against the evils of slavery. However, people in the South were using the book of Revelations, seeing this as the battle of Armageddon, that they were the ones who were standing up for what is right. After all, the Bible talked about man's right to own another human being. So on both sides, you saw people using the the prophetic language, this apocalyptic wartime literature to affirm their path. And of course, this still happens today. But let's talk a little bit about why Christians believe about in times, what what it what happened about a couple of hundred years ago that made this become such a uh, part of the uh, theology, especially around evangelical Christianity. Well, uh, you have John Nelson Darby to thank for that. Uh, John Nelson Darby died in 1882. So this theology is about 195 years, just a little under 200 years old now. He was born in Ireland, and he was a staunch uh, apologist for purity in the Christian religion. He resigned his position as inside a church position to join a group of Christians who were called simply the Brethren, and their entire commitment was to, to operate and live by a strict biblical code So what they've also believed is that the group, none of the community should have professional members. They absolutely rejected denominationalism. As you can imagine, after the Protestant Reformation, there were already hundreds of denominations worldwide, and everybody, of course, was finding out about them. Now we're at about 25,000, 30,000 Christian denominations worldwide. So you can tell that it it hasn't stopped. Um, They believed that you did not need ministers, that ministers were often um, led by the worldly agendas and egos and did not serve the institution of Christianity to their highest good. Now, an argument could be made about that just based on a lot of our experiences where we have seen ministers abuse that role. That's not to say all of them have. I know some wonderful ministers. So this, but it is, there is an argument for this, but They believed that they should focus on just having simple services, a time of prayer and and worship. And that was it. Whoever felt like they needed to speak, they could. So this was a little bit like uh, what you what you see. I believe it's with the Quakers. I might be getting might be. I think it's the Quakers. I'm not sure. I'll have to go look that up. Uh, But in 1828, Darby wrote a pamphlet pamphlet called The Nature and Unity of the Church of Christ. And in that he described their beliefs and practices. Now, this pamphlet just took off, not only in Ireland, it took off across North America, Australia, and New Zealand. And basically, it was condemning denominationalism, and it started the believers to think about his new ecclesiology, which was basically there would be an end of the world, and Jesus would come 
back and would uh, conquer evil because everyone would be raptured up and then Jesus would come and, and reign on, on the earth. And they believed that there would be a thousand year reign of peace. And during this time, that is when I, I don't want to get into a lot of the details here, but uh, you can read about, I'll put the, I'll put it in the show notes about what you can read, but basically they believed, uh, Darby believed that there were several ages of spirituality. And some of what he believed was during the paradise, which was the world, the creation of world, then Noah, Abraham, Israel, the Gentiles, the spirit, and they were getting ready to enter the, the millennium. So he saw this as a, he called this a progressive revelation, which meant he was explaining the stages of, of a redemptive plan that God had for the universe. So he basically was dividing history into these into these periods. But what was different was the rapture. And he said during this time that Christ will come for his saints. And then at the second coming, he will come with his saints. So this caught on like wildfire throughout all of, of, of America primarily. But basically what it said was in this, in this age, the Christians who reign with Christ will have been given an eternal glorified body and will reign spiritually. Now, you got to hear this last part. Jewish people would then dominate the world. They would not be in spiritual bodies. They would be in physical bodies. They could live, marry, and die because they, they, we, the, the Christians, they were saying we Christians would live forever. We would reign spiritually, but the Jews would be willing, would, would inhabit the world and dominate the world. And this would go on for a thousand years. So then what happens is after Christ puts down the final rebellion and ushers in this state of a new heaven and new earth, then we enter a time where Christ is dominating the world and Jews then would have an opportunity to convert to Christianity or perish along with no other non-believers. So that was really a, a short summary of what's in this. And you could take a deep dive into end times prophecy, any place you want. I will tell you this, if you search on end times prophecy on its own, you are more than likely going to be dominated by evangelical focused, evangelical centric content. That's going to be like the first 2550 hits because there's so many people who search at it from that context to see it through a contextual historical lens you're going to have to search for something like alternative theology or go to someplace like progressivechristianity.org and if you go to progressive progressingspirit.org that's the place where John Shelby Spong John Shelby Spong was a an episcopal episcopal uh, bishop who died in September of 21. Um, I consider him one of my uh, life heroes because his writings helped me so much, but that is a paywall for that website, but it's worth it. All of his writings outside of his books are there and it's worth reading there. You get a lot of the historical uh, context. And of course, that book that I mentioned in another one that it's uh, from Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, and I'll put that in the show notes, called Heaven and Hell. So the interesting thing here, and I'm not going to be able, I'll take this on some other time, but when we talk about this 
the word that's coming up for me is this funky relationship that Christians, evangelical Christians have with Israel. It has everything to do with end times prophecy, because end times prophecy also says that Judaism, I'm sorry, Jerusalem will be, will be reestablished to its old boundaries and its old boundaries include areas that are now in, that are now part of Palestine. And if you don't believe me, when I say that most Christians interpret that to mean that to be pro-Israel, you must be enemies to all of Israel's enemies, then you need to see a movie called Trump, the Trump prophecy, which is now on Amazon prime. And it is, it was funded by or done in conjunction with Liberty University. So Liberty University is highly connected with the Southern Baptist Convention. So you know where this is going, but it's important for you to understand the theology behind this. If you want to understand why so many Christians consider themselves pro-Israel, it's because of end times prophecy so that they can reign the earth spiritually when Christ will, will conquer all. So they use this partnership to get what they want while Israel is using it to justify what happens there. Now, like I said, I'm going to ruffle a lot of feathers with what I said but I'm telling you that we need to have this very uncomfortable conversation when it comes to Christian Zionism and why at the same time, some of the most hateful anti-Semitic rhetoric will come from evangelical Christians because of their belief that the Jews killed Jesus. The Jews crucified Jesus. The Jews did not crucify Jesus. The Romans did. Crucifixion was was a hundred percent a Roman torture device. And Jesus was a threat to their authority. And he came on their radar many times when he pushed back against uh, Jewish authority to try to call to uh, call attention to the corruptness that was happening that perpetually oppressed people and perpetually rewarded corruption. So yeah, that, that's a strong right detour there that we're going to come back and I'm collecting all kinds of information so that we can have that long, uncomfortable conversation. But it's very important that especially those of you who are deconstructing and you're looking at decolonizing your faith and understanding much of your biases and prejudices, you must understand this. Now in this, in the blog that accompanies this, I go into a story about Nicole Nordeben, who is a contemporary Christian songwriter. And she was one of my favorites when I, I used to listen to her all the times. And she has a very mystical edge to a lot of her, her songs, but she became popular along with the uh, bands like United Hillsong United, Third Day, Mercy Me, places like that. But she's not as widely known because she has more of a mystical style, but she wrote a song about that's titled what if you're wrong and when I saw that question from somebody I thought about that that song and oftentimes what 
where we get to this place is when somebody is deconstructing, especially for me, because honestly, that was one of the things just because I left church and I've talked about this before, just rejecting your, your religious heritage and your experience doesn't mean that you're still not carrying those indoctrinated beliefs. So it's very important that you still go through the process of untangling for those, from those beliefs so that you can get down to the essence of who you are. So that you can understand that spirituality does not have to be filtered through any of those indoctrinated beliefs, that you can come to the place of understanding that how we show up in the world, how we are as humans, where is our kindness, how are we touching humanity, how are we living at a, a, a kinder, more better off that we were here, what is our legacy, is more about our spirituality than anything that we can ever believe. So when we start to look at a theology that sees things as more undefinable and that undefinable isn't a threat, then we move into a place where we are ready to expand and move beyond those things that have held us captive and in fear about what may happen down the road. And I don't know how many times I've heard pray before it's too late, repent before it's too late. Yes, even now that sometimes those things can, can ping you, but then immediately I go, wait a minute, that's no longer who I am. I deconstructed from that belief because that is a fear tactic to hold me in place. And when I came to a place in my spirituality, in my spiritual journey, where I replaced that need to be held captive by fear, as well as my need to define God in ways that were acceptable to my religious heritage, then I expanded beyond that. And I began to heal those wounds that almost needed to be open because fear is the only way fear can live us live in us is if we have wounds that's willing to hold it. And knowing that I had spent so much of my life deeply entrenched in fear-based theology, I'm not about to go back there. But I understand this so well. I understand this, this expression of fear and confusion and, and understanding how it gripped me for decades and why it just helps me. I'm just thrilled when someone comes to me and says, how can I release this? But I can tell you this, that it takes work. I wish I could just tell you to turn on a, read this book, do this, do that, and it will all go away, which then in turn, I'm doing exactly what people who keep you in fear do. If I use enough words to try to exhaust you into believing something, then I am nothing more than an evangelical using using different tactics to get you to believe something I want you to believe. Beloved, it's more important that you do the work, that you do the work through deconstructing, that you go get that Bart Ehrman book or read about heaven and hell, that you come to any teachings that I may be having in the future to learn about why, why it is important to deconstruct, to read Elaine Pagel's book about revelations, to talk to other people who've deconstructed, move into those communities. We've heard you loud and clear. We know that you want a place, a safe space where you can ask questions. And trust me, keep in touch. That's coming very soon so we can have those conversations. We know this is hard work. Anything that's worth doing is hard work. Just like taking care of your body is hard work. Taking care of yourself emotionally, feeding yourself with good food, it's hard work. Spiritual, deep, sacred soul work is hard work. 
But in the end, it's worth it because little by little and layer by layer, you start to peel back those indoctrinated beliefs that have had you entrenched in fear for so much of your life. And then one day you realize that your Christian beliefs should never have been the gatekeeper of your spirituality, should never have kept you entrenched in fear, should never have tried to hold you captive just based on the fact that you're afraid of what if. When what if didn't even exist two year, 200 years ago, this is a new theology coming from the people who insist that the Bible is inerrant and, and the literal interpretation that we are supposed to take everything literal. Okay, if we're supposed to take everything literal and nothing changes, how can this theology only be 200 years old? How can this theology just have come up in a generation that I can almost touch? I knew my great grandmother. We're talking about not that long ago that this theology came, but yet we're supposed to believe an infallible and errant word of God that's a literal translation. This doesn't add up. That's a dichotomy that cannot be aligned. You cannot have it both ways. So from that point, I am willing to take the chance when someone says, what if you're wrong? I, I have more historical and ancient, sacred, ancient context than a theology by one person who wrote a pamphlet that went viral across a couple of continents because he believed that every denomination was wrong, including Christianity. He was against it. He was against any church unless you were doing things 100% his way. Well, what the denominations decided was let's just take the part out about fear base. Let's make everybody believe that Revelations is about end times theology so we can control that. But let's forget the part that he said about our church being bad. Let's forget. Do you see the hypocrisy that even exists inside? in times prophecy. So when you ask me, what if you're wrong? I'm telling you that I no longer believe I am because I took a look at those same scriptures after I deconstructed. And I believe that if this divine being, this divine love, this divine Holy one created humanity, there is no way that it's going to be destroyed in this fashion. No friends, we are capable of, of, of destroying ourselves for sure. But it is not because there's going to be a horseman ap apocalypse that's going to come down from the sky and take you and I. Oh, I guess we wouldn't go up, would we? We wouldn't be a part of the rapture. Well, that's good. That's a good place to stop. I want to I want to close with one thing. Nicole Nordeman's song is so beautiful. And you need to take a look at my blog if you want to see what, what I wrote. But this song that she wrote is What If You're Wrong? And I want to, I would just, I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to speak the, the lyrics. It says, what if you're wrong? What if there's more? What if there's hope you've never dreamed of hoping for? What if you jump and just close your eyes? What if the arms that catch you, catch you by surprise? What if he's more than love? What if it's love? So beautiful soul, what if we're wrong? What if all of this has always been about love? Join me in this. Let us close our eyes and jump. I am willing to take that chance. Now, won't you join me? Now, the only thing I'll add there is that Nicole 
may not even be aware of the mystical language that she uses around her expressions of faith. Many people who are deeply connected to the holy are not. They write from a space of vulnerability and authenticity that most of us will never experience. And she did use the pronoun he in this, making it clear that her faith still anthropomorphizes God to be a, a patriarchal masculine figure. So while her song lyrics still speak to my soul, I deconstructed my belief in this understanding of God and do not use pronouns to describe the divine. I think it's very important for you to hear. So when I say something like that, you understand that I'm just simply paraphrasing something that was said. I still love the lyrics to this song and can accept that her belief has brought her to that point and still uses the pronoun he, I do not. And blessed be. Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you and I pray that you receive something. I know I did because the teacher teaches what she needs to hear. And now beloveds, go in peace and be at peace. Go in love, may you be loved and go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to Spirituality Matters wherever you listen to podcasts. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe to Rev Carla's channel for more videos. Submit questions for upcoming Q&A videos or topics of discussion to spiritualitymatters at revcarla.com. As always, follow at RevCarla on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Pinterest for more spirituality teachings. Bye for now!